Hello and welcome to Paytech Insider News, coming to you from the heart of London. In fact, welcome to the pilot for Paytech Insider News. So this is either going to be heard by just David, Jason and the rest of the 11FS team, uh, or it's going to be heard by, I reckon, close to, you know, maybe a million, million plus people. We're, we're optimistic. Uh, I am Ali Patterson. I'll be uh, hosting this, uh, this episode today. I'm joined by some very special guests. First of all, I have got Robert Coltridge. I always, I, I'm, Courtnage. Courtnage. I always mispronounce yeah. your name. It's, it's easily done. From uh, from more what more one. Robert, what have you? You can't even pronounce oh, the name of the company. <laughs> Gotta bleep that. Oh. Out already. This is definitely the final. So, right, brilliant. <laughs> Firstly, to my left, I have got Robert Courtnage from More One. No. <laughs> he was on the. Where did he actually? Nadge Wanzman. <laughs> Robert. W- no. <laughs> Do you want to try again that, Alan? Yeah. Right, I'll do it one more time and then I'll get you to probably try to do the GDPR yourself. bit if you can't remember my name. Firstly, to my left, I've got Robert Quartz. <laughs> For GDPR reasons. <laughs> to my left, I've got Robert. Robert, who are you? Okay, um, I'm, I'm Robert Cornage, uh, and uh, until very recently, I was a, a major fintech lawyer uh, for the past 30 years, but in January this year, I decided to drop that all away uh, and become CEO of a payments company. And the fun that that ensued. So the payments company is called Morewand, and we are effectively a specialist bin sponsor company, um, working currently with Visa, Mastercard, and China Union Pay, and soon to be JCB too. Oh, nice little segue there. Yeah. We're also joined by Andrew. Andrew, who are you? For GDPR reasons, of course, I can't introduce you. It depends who's controlling. Um, no, no. I'm Andrew Mitchell. I'm from JCB. I'm a JCB lifer. Um, so man and boy, uh, been in JCB payment card scheme, obviously originated in Japan, um, but now a sort of broadening global uh, card company. Just to, to uh, contextualize, I'm working in the London headquarters for JCB, obviously headquarters for JCB in itself is in Tokyo. And for implementing global strategy, I work in the business team there, which is really for anything you like, really. Odd job guy, I guess. Um, but implementing strategy. So when it comes to mainly acquiring new connectivities, some bits of sort of business compliance, attack, that kind of thing. Brilliant, excellent. And last but not least, we are joined by Emma. I'm going to give up on names and, uh, and companies. Emma, who are you? Um, well, my name is slightly more easy to pronounce. I think I'm Emma Pearson. I lead content for Money 2020 Europe. Um, and to contextualise for uh, anyone who, hopefully there is no one who doesn't know who Money 2020 are, um, but we are the largest uh, fintech uh, conference in the world. With uh, I lead content for Europe, but we also have our events um, across the globe. Um, our next event coming up in Las Vegas, uh, followed by our China launch and our Asia event in Singapore. Right, our first story of the week comes from Slate, how Apple plans to win the mobile payment war, which is all around mobile payments, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Google Google Pay, and I am, this is, uh, in the face. Right. <laughs> in the face, just, just in case I missed that. <laughs> our first story comes from Slate, which is about how Apple plans to win the mobile payment war. What do we guys think about Apple Pay as a mobile payment? Are we actually are we actually using this? And I want to go to Andrew first with with the uh, JCB and uh, and Apple Pay. Well, I, I have to obviously watch what I say about the the giant Apple in the sky. Um, I'm sure that they have eyes everywhere watching this. But yeah, I'm a convert. I, I use Apple Pay. I'll, I'll be straight up and honest about that. And I came to use Apple Pay because I lost my wallet. 
So obviously I'd, I'd be using my tap and go every day, using my, my plastic cards. Um, one day I lose my wallet, what do I do? I'm, I'm stranded, I'm in London. Um, so I call the wife, saying, please give me your card number, bang, there you go. I'm an Apple Pay user from there on in. So I find it very convenient. Winning the mobile payment war, I don't know what you guys here think, but for me, it's very convenient. And I think we have to look at really what the future will be for Apple Pay. Is it you know data collection? Do they want to be these, this ubiquitous card scheme or payment scheme in itself at the moment to me they're they're kind of riding the rails of what we do as a card scheme you know they they go to issuers they go to acquirers they get acceptance um, their acceptance is generally operating on the card scheme rails when it comes to actually face-to-face -face point of sale transactions obviously for in-app that's a slightly different business um, but for me at the moment i don't see them moving beyond that i think now they start to talk about um, peer-to-peer -peer payments. I think that's an interesting market. And obviously, if we look at the sort of post-PSD2 world and how that's changing things, uh, you know, PISPs, all these different new market entrants and disruptors, I would imagine at some point they make a leap into that space. But for now, I'm not sure. It's interesting, actually, the article points out that Apple Pay 2014, 87 million users worldwide. Whereas you compare that to some of the more sort of P2P and the, the Chinese giants like WeChat and Alipay, a combined billion users. PayPal, what, 200 million users? Is, is Apple Pay really getting the traction that it... That well, it doesn't even say that they're active users, to be fair. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, th I think a lot of people are, are, are like me. They're passive users. I'll, I'll use it in Apple when I'm there because it's very convenient to use in Apple because you can use it for any payment. But if I'm using it where in normal day-to-day -day use, I would much rather use my contactless ring or whatever. Yeah. Um, but a similar experience uh, to you. Um, I, <laughs> the last time I used it in in action was uh, in Kiev airport when I'd got an early morning flight and arrived there and realized I'd not brought my wallet with me. I had my mobile phone, had my contactless ring, so, so that got me through on the airport, got me through on the Heathrow Express, all that stuff. Got there and realized I left my wallet at home in my drawer. <laughs> Um, I was only in Paddington, but you were in Kiev. Yeah, I was in Kiev, um, <laughs> and I managed to survive the, the rest of a, a week's business trip uh, <laughs> using my phone and my ring. Uh, it's, it is surprising how far you can go using it in, in, in business, uh, and we forget. <laughs> oh my gosh, what, I, I, I need my wallet. We have a, a, a safety blanket, I'm almost called it, I think, if you, if you like, uh, of having your wallet with cash in it. Yeah. But it's really weird. I, I'm spending a lot of time in Denmark at the moment, and no one will accept cash in Denmark. They don't want cash. And then you go somewhere else like Greece and uh, they only want cash. Yeah. So it, it, I, I think it's gonna, it's still a market-based thing. And I, I think Apple Pay is, is a good solution. But I think a lot of the stuff that is coming through on the technology side, uh, on sort of pin-on-glass stuff that Visa and MasterCard are doing for, for removing POS terminals, I think a lot of the, uh, the, the stuff where you just go into the store and it, it follows you around like the Amazon store and that. These sort of concepts that there are today probably seven, eight years down the line will be standard. So biometrics, uh, other solutions through the mobile are probably going to come through. Um, but it has to pioneer somewhere in the Apple Pay, Samsung Pay and Google Pays of this world are the sort of pioneers, I think. But do you think it will be like a, a continued, um, I don't know, or maybe a continuation of what they did before? So, you know, when we look at NFC, they took a long time to get into that space. That's and everybody sort of sat back and said, well, we know they're doing something, but we don't know what. And I think, you know, at the moment, what the stat that I read was 16% of people are using Apple Pay, which has a much better penetration rate for Apple. Obviously, we don't know to what extent. <clears throat> much better sort of penetration rate than Samsung, um, for instance. But I think maybe the, the key thing for them is conversion. 
you know, why aren't people using uh, Apple Pay? Um, so maybe same thing for Samsung. Why aren't people using Samsung Pay? So I don't know, do you ever use? As a Samsung Pay user, um, you know, I find that a lot of, for me, um, the viable use cases for mobile payments as a consumer, I tend to find are around transport. Yeah, I think yeah, about yeah. when I really yeah. use um, my my Samsung Pay is when I've got my phone out in the morning, I'm replying to emails, I'm at the ticket barrier and I go through. And the biometrics element of it is what's made it so easy for me um, because I can just use my thumbprint. Whereas I think before when it was PIN, it felt like a lot, you know, there's a lot more friction um, than there was to, to use just my wallet, which I, you know, I've got my card in there. Mm. I can tap my wallet. I see a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends put their credit card in the back, um, in their case, they in do, the yeah. case. And that's mobile payments, right? <laughs> I guess. Um, <laughs> I guess. I mean, the, th the odd thing is that, I don't know whether any of you saw that survey that Visa did in December last year, and it shows like Australia's got the highest penetration of contactless, like 96% or something. Yeah. But America's still sub 1%, uh, which is the heart of mm. Apple, <laughs> as it were. Uh, it always says made in California. And yet they've got sub 1% acceptance of contactless in America. Until that changes, how can things like Apple Pay and contactless really blossom? Mm -hmm. I think we saw that, didn't we, Ali, with um, the payments race in, uh, in Las Vegas for Money 2020. Uh, contactless had a bit of drama um, to get from, from Cybos to uh, Las Vegas. Only person that's ever quit a payments race was traveling from Toronto to Vegas using only Curve mobile payments or simply tap impossible they, they were buying subway and starbucks and trying to trade the subway <laughs> and starbucks yeah, to get there he was on the edge. Um, wow. well that actually ties in neatly because america is very cash based and uh over here in the uk there is fears of deserts of atms for 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 cash um this is a guardian piece which is plans to slash the fees paid by banks to cash machine operators have been scaled back prompted by fears of atm deserts what do we feel about this of having like, areas where there are no ATMs that are there is no way to get cash, especially if there's still local people that are only expecting I only accept cash? I mean, I grew up in well, a suburb of London, let's say Essex, fine, fine piece of land. Um, but you know, the town I grew up in kind of had is a satellite town off of one of the sort of main thoroughfare towns in Essex, and you know, there was no ATM until I was maybe 21. There's nothing, nothing at all. You'd have to drive three or four miles to a bank to get to the next ATM. So nowadays, I love it. You, you, you did have trouble getting in with your Zimmer frame earlier. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they've got the oxygen tent on the side. Of it. You'd be 105 this year. Still going strong. <laughs> no, but it is, it's amazing how quickly this actually has happened. He's, yeah. he's. By the way, he's nowhere near 105. <laughs> not yet. <not even> <laughs> but. Um, no, the real thing is that, that time gap. I mean, I would imagine now there's no shortage of ATMs in that area. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, we've got, have you seen the uh, cashless ATMs as well, where you, you have them at like hotels where you go there and you pr it prints out like a little piece of paper, you then go to the hotel desk and exchange that for cash? So it's yeah. what, like... That's catching on. This, yeah. this kind of cashback model is now starting to catch on. Actually, I see the experience of a lot of uh, Asian countries now, and people are actually moving towards QR cashback actually right. in store so you know you'll find it's not just a hotel there are several sort of supermarkets and people like this that are happy to move to that kind of cashback model i think the main thing for us now obviously we try to move more towards a cashless society in here in uk particularly we're we're big on card payment or uh, payment instruments rather than cash but i think you know people will still use cash 
um, but it's the cost of running ATMs is really the key issue. So now I think a lot of banks are trying to scale back and, and digitize. Um, we've had a lot of independent players moving into the market and actually the fee structures around the, the domestic uh, scheme here for ATMs has kind of been a little bit more in their favor, but they probably have more overheads for running it. So it's really that risk operation and actual running of the physical ATMs themselves and the software that really creates the cost side. And I think that's why now when we look at what the link scheme are doing, there are a lot of uh, internal disputes and squabbles about how to manage this fee part. Because yeah, cash is not, cash isn't free. That's one thing that I think uh, there's kind of a bit of a cultural thing, especially, especially in the US that cash is, cash is free. But here it's, it, I just look at some of the stats here, it's something like 97% of withdrawals are from the free to use machines. So you do get that impression that it is free, but then in reality, you're paying for that with your bank fees, you're paying for that with your overdrafts because most ATMs are owned by the banks. And I love the fact they can still get away with the signage free cash on the cash machines. Because <laughs> how can that be true? Absolutely. I think it's a statement actually. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not what it sounds like. It's free cash. <laughs> let it escape. We want to let it go. Don't, don't, don't keep it hidden in this machine. Uh, free it. Um, yeah, it's a sort of hunger strike for cash machines. Cool. Our next story is actually from Finextra, which is Mastercard is looking to put its vocal link assets to work, partnering WorldPay to push the Pay by Bank app that lets British online shoppers bypass this huge network of, of MasterCard. Um, just well, not just MasterCard, well, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, cannibalizing its own own customers, but in the same time, cannibalizing those of all the other schemes. Which is because fast, actually, VocalLink, which do the whole thing with faster fast payments, payments, that yeah. went down, uh, was it last last week for a little bit? Yeah. I think there have been some technical issues. <laughs> yeah, last week they had a, a few problems. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know, MasterCard, VocalLink, obviously, Mastercard pulled out Vocalink, but I think, you know, in terms of the whole operation of uh, faster payments and the ATM networks, obviously the government's had a big interest in that. Competition uh, authorities have, took a long look at that purchase. So I think it is interesting to see where they're going strategically. I think everything is obviously gearing more towards uh, instant payments. And I think that's, that's a really interesting topic because we all know that the quickest instant payment is cash, right? But, <laughs> um, I think now, uh, you know, we can see PSD2 world, you know, payment initiation. I think this is obviously a form of payment initiation. Key thing, I think, for somebody like WorldPay to be involved is obviously the speed of, of settlement towards their merchants. So I think you know, the major car schemes ourselves included are looking at that. I think that's a, a key topic. Depending on which rails here, we can see pay by bank is obviously that sort of payment initiation rails. I guess it's Pingit, basically Barclays Pingit mm -hmm. sitting in the background. Um, I think it probably is the future. You know, when you look at the costs, you know, we have to be honest. You know, we're a card scheme, JCB, and and we've operated on an interchange system, which you know that that works to build a global network uh, over many many years. So you know, the demise of the interchange system that's an interesting topic because you know, effectively, we take funds in most cases from an acquirer, we give it to an issuer. It's a pass through pretty much. Um, so how do you replace that financial model with this kind of model? You know, actually, when you start to do this, you know, and it achieves universality. Um, that's when I think the costs really become uh, apparent. You know, we don't have maybe this pass-through model, but we have a per-transaction model. You know, look at all the, the the different things that you know people like Vocalink will have to deliver here in terms of security, cryptography, uh, interoperability of, of contracts and liabilities. I think it's at the moment on more of a small scale, but I think once you extrapolate and look at it in the long term, it'll be um, maybe a little bit more expensive than it is today. I think the other thing and the whole 
Mastercard acquisition of Vocalink was to try and rebalance the position that Mastercard were in against Visa, who owned pretty much the whole of the European debit network. And it was their way to get into the banking system. Um, and effectively, this idea of pay by bank is almost offering a, a, a direct debit solution f using this new platform. And I, and I, and I, and I think the, the whole question after PSD2 with uh, the, the sort of the, the payment initiation services coming through is questioning what the total need for the schemes will be going forward. So how do the schemes reinvent themselves and what are they doing to reinvent themselves? But then how do you do that globally? I think that that's that's the key problem. And you know, is it a wise thing to do now in terms of a strategy because you, you're partly cutting your own throat in terms of fee model? I'm not saying that you know, cards business earns a lot more money for the card schemes, but I think when you look at paying less than a cent uh, transactional cost on a sort of bank transfer rails and instant payment rails, then you think that that would kind of be an unwise, you know, that's going to have a much less revenue for Mastercard than perhaps Visa would earn from the debit network. So I think we have to find ways to to balance and maybe offer. The, the most amount of uh, service options here, we just discussed, you know, we're all converts to, to NFC, you know, the pays. Um, but I think maybe there's a wider diversity of customers. So I think me probably here are going to be the early adopters in things like this, but actually there's going to be people using cash, certainly the older generations, but the millennials will maybe move to it. So I think it's having multiplicity of different product offers. And I think, you know, we as a card scheme look to do that. We already have that, to be honest, and I think at the moment for us in Japan particularly, and some of the emerging markets where we, we look to globalize our issuing proposition, um, particularly countries like India, we look more towards a QR method. And QR, again, is, is something we haven't talked about yet, but I mean, certainly the WeChat proposition is like spreading like wildfire and everyone's saying, oh, we should go to QR code. Well, people were talking about QR code payments about 20 years ago to me, yeah, and yeah, it yeah, never yeah, took yeah. off anywhere because no one wanted it. <laughs> and, and now I'm thinking, QR codes, really? We go, we, it seems like we're going backwards, yeah. but it's quick, cheap, and convenient. That's why. And it's like the, um, the whole uh, Kenya, what's it? Uh, M -Pesa. M -Pesa, yeah, yeah. So the whole M Pesa thing working on an analog phones using text yeah. to move money. And the original way in which you, you sent all your money onto the, the TV shows using text. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's odd that you can have such a a, a backward system actually to pay forwards. But I think you've kind of hit the nail on, on the head there with the whole QR codes thing because if you think about M-Pesa where they've tried where any other Safaricom and other mobile operators even in pan-African countries have tried to replicate the success of M-Pesa hasn't worked um, and I think that that's when people are talking about dragging and dropping Asian models for QR codes into Europe we don't see it working because there's not the customer appetite and there's not the yeah. adoption and I think that that's kind of the disparity that we see mm. like in, in global payments infrastructure that everybody's trying to, to drag and drop and, and we don't see it working. Well, but there is a whole move and I've, I've seen things coming into Europe now where they're trying to integrate a, a WeChat solution into a, a railed solution with a, mm. a with a scheme whereby you somehow integrate the, the, the QR code part of it into a online transaction in a normal way but you sort of just merge the two together to allow people to use their WeChat app to pay for normal goods or services through a card scheme mm -hmm. um, and certainly there's a few fintech companies out there looking at those solutions at the moment and it wouldn't surprise me if something like that came through i love the uh comments that you get on uh, on finextra this is uh uh pay by bank enables customers of uk businesses to make online payments for goods and services via their banking app 
why would any shopper in their right mind do this and lose the protection that would come from paying by card? But more importantly, give direct access to the bank account. Is this being touted as a benefit for the shopper, but surely this is a benefit for the merchant as opposed to the actual consumer themselves? I mean, we're all fintechy people, but can you really see the general public using this quite a lot? Or will they probably stick with the card? Yeah, but it's, it's how, how to change customer behavior. Like you said, you know, even think go back to the, the, the entrance into the market in with debit cards. You know, why would that have been in any consumer's interest? Like you said, then it is more or less in the bank's interest. Uh, maybe a merchant's interest, depending upon how quickly you can switch uh, sediment. So I think sediment, speed of sediment is a key issue. And I think that is probably something that we look at now as a, a real primary focus. Changing customer behavior, that's that's harder to do. I think it comes back to what Emma was saying, you know, you try and drag and drop, uh, copy and paste Asian models into Europe. Well, actually, look at our POS infrastructure. It's, I don't say more sophisticated, but more mature as a market. So, you know, we implemented NFC broadly across Europe. It's not perfect, it's not everywhere. Why are we suddenly going back to using QR? Well, I think it depends on how you see the future of transactions, whether they're push and pull. Um, but really, I think we're probably in that area era of millennials starting to to change the face of the payments market so i think there's a tendency towards using a smartphone that maybe the older generations don't have so i think there'll be more of an evolution rather than revolution um, but it depends upon how you monetize as well i mean how do you make revenue from this crm i think that's probably where we see wechat pay starting to move ahead and making a little bit of progress uh, on Alipay. So I think we as card schemes particularly look at that and say, well, you know, we can easily be a PISP. Well, I don't say easily, maybe that's too arrogant, but we could be a PISP, but what's the proposition? How are we going to make money? How are we going to monetize this? Bringing on the uh, subject of the Chinese giants, uh, neatly onto our next story. I'll give Peter that little segue there. Uh, Tencent and Alipay are set to lose a billion in revenue from new payment rules coming into place. Uh, this is a new central bank requirement that third-party payment groups have to hold all customer funds in reserve. And they estimate this is going to cost the big giants, which own 54% and 39% respectively of the uh, market share over in, over in China, about a billion US dollars. Um, is, this, is this Alipay being regulated like a bank? Is this them becoming officially more like a bank? To me, it seems stronger, right? I mean, you know, now even if you look at Basel III, capital requirements for banks, you know, this is much stronger. So I'm not really familiar with the background to know that um, the, the Chinese government has a particular leaning, but I see that almost as a hostile move, no? Well, I think it used to be that they were allowed to invest the funds. But even then, it was only a proportion. I didn't think it was everything. So now saying basically they have to hold back everything. They're basically copying the European e-money regulations where you have to hold 100% of the, mm. the, the e-money issued. And that has been a, a, a problem throughout. Um, it was one of the reasons people like uh, Vodafone never wanted to end up with their pay-as-you-go being uh, e-money because if, as soon as you start sort of having those contracts through that, you'd have to hold all that stack of cash and you couldn't do anything with it. So all the prepaid minutes people had would have been a nightmare for them to, to deal with. So they, they, that's why the mobile phone operators always had the carve-out in the uh, e-money regulations because they, they couldn't have coped with the amount of capital they would have had to hold on the prepaid minutes. But it is a, it is a burden to the e-money industry of holding this cash in a European financial institution, most of whom don't want to hold it. So you find people are holding it in Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Estonia, anywhere but the UK because Barclays 
Nat West and Nick Lloyd, they don't want to hold it because they can't do anything with it either because it's ring-fenced, it's a, it's a safeguarded account. So this whole idea of holding 100% of capital plus 2% on top of that which you have to hold as regulatory capital mm. means that e-money issuers, it's very difficult to, to make money, whereas the banks have only got maybe between 8 and 20% that they're holding in liquid cash and the rest of it is invested and they can do overnight deposits and things like that to make returns on it, whereas e-money issuers can't. So the e-money issuers can only make money out of interchange, which has pretty much gone away, FX, which is probably the only choice now, uh, and fees. And, and so it makes it a much more difficult proposition. But do we think maybe they're, they're trying to achieve some kind of equivalency as a kind of precursor to a next step of expansion? I think you know it makes sense to me that they've grown so rapidly and I think we in the West are, are looking at it very carefully to say okay why is this so successful and could it be here could it really align itself with the kind of post PSD2 world um, for me I think it's got to be an option for the future and it makes perfect sense to go for equivalency yeah no it makes it a fairer playing field for the Europeans do you think this is going to have like, just in terms of the consumer they don't really Again, the average person doesn't really care that this is happening, but will this have an effect on the on the consumer, the fact that this money is now being held? Um, my understanding of what the People's Bank is, is doing in China is just being a lot more, I guess I'm loath to say draconian, but I can't think of a better word, um, <laughs> but looking, you know, very much about, like, into customer protection. So my... Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily know if it's going to affect the consumer from from that standpoint but there's you know I think up until quite recently China was quite the wild west for for loans um, and I think that this feeds into and correct me if I'm mistaken but a, a bit of a wider strategy by by the People's Bank to to really sort of control um, I suppose the the flow of, of capital and the increase of capital that can be done by by non-regulated instruments which um, there's a degree that Alipay and, and, and Tempe. But there, there's always been this this playoff, and, and this has happened in, in Europe since 2001 when things first started kicking off in this whole space, between the banks and the, and the non-bank financial institutions, mm -hmm. where the banks want to protect their space and the non-bank financial institutions want to get in it because they can offer better, faster, quicker, more transparent services. Um, and to me, this sounds like it could be a bank-led push to say, you're making too much money out of this, you're, making, you're taking money off of, out of our pockets. Mm -hmm. If we put this in position on you, it's going to make it more difficult. You might actually have to charge a more realistic rate for what you're offering. And so the, the cost will go on to the consumer, and it may mean that it may be cheaper to use a bank than it would be to use a WeChat. I, just a saying. Mm -hmm. But is that, yeah, I guess the, the value proposition for for not using a bank, I guess, is that what we see those payments giants do so well is converge everything that, you know, I want to do um, as a consumer in, in one application, one interface and make it so, so easy. Um, so kind of going back to what we were talking about with sort of Apple Pay Cash, my partner recently, um, his friend or yeah, his friend owed him some money and was going to pay him on Facebook. Um, Facebook Messenger yeah. and he was so grumpy he was like I've got to do this I've got to do that like why can't I just give him my account details and I was like in five years this will be how you do everything because there will be one single point where your social retail and financial life converges and I think yeah. you know do we, we, like to, we like to pay 
we all rather we pref yeah we like to pay to make things easy i would rather pay to have an easy friction-free experience yes. than i would i you know i'd much rather give give away my money to someone who's going to make my life easier than pay to make my life more difficult you probably cheaper. pay a package fee for a whole set of things including your netflix and it'll include all your payment costs at the same time yeah and you won't know how much of it is for your payments but hey you get your films, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that's going to be a talking point at Money 2020 over in China this November. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, I think you know, what we, we've got some, some fantastic speakers um, lined up absolutely from those payments giants, from, from the regulators. Um, and yeah, I think I, I'd love to, to give more away, but, um, you know, maybe on the next uh, yeah. uh, Paytech Ch Insider, I can, I can tell you some more. Right? <laughs> we're, we are getting there couldn't make any promises okay, so cool. well let's just take a quick break and then uh, back into the news my name is Sarah Koshansky from 11FS tickets for our live fintech insider after dark shows are now available we will be doing live shows in both London and Atlanta on the 26th of July the London one is at a new secret location um, do not miss out head over to afterdark.11fs.com to book your tickets hello and welcome back on to our next story and we are talking biometrics and this is a story from Global Newswire. Smartmetric announces a new biometric credit card designed to make online transactions safer using a fingerprint in-card authentication. Um, I know you had some guys presenting this uh, in, uh, in Amsterdam. What, what's your thoughts on a fingerprint on the card to verify identity? I think there's quite mixed opinion about it, isn't there, really? Um, I, as a lover of sort of all things kind of future tech, I think it's absolutely fascinating, but I know it's very um, divisive um, within, within the industry. My question is how long a card's going to be around anyway, so what's the point of building tech into little tiny cards? I think, I think wearables are going to be around longer than cards. You've I think got one on right now. I've got one on now. I've got my curve ring, curve wearable ring. Um, and... It's, it's, I think people like things like that, but I think people probably will end up, uh, I don't know, injecting stuff into your bloodstream when you're born and then you'll be followed for the rest of your life. It'll track through your eyeballs. Who knows? You're, you're, well, one of, um, our, one of the speakers that got the most interest at our Las Vegas um, event last year was, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of his company. I feel, I feel really bad now, but <laughs> he had, he had um, a, a chip in, in, his in, skin. In, in the skin and he was on a panel discussion and pretty much 80% of the questions that were coming in were just like, what can you do with a chip? What, what does this do? Have you got one for your kids? Because that's the thing that people sort of see. Well, they were looking at them for that, like these sort of beach holidays, 18 to 25 holidays, where they just, you, you get a choice and you can just inject the chip mm. in, under, under your skin at the beginning of the holiday. And then you do all your payments on that. They know who it is and you don't need to wear anything. You've just got it under your skin. And it is totally non-toxic. They're just, they're about, that's more anyway mm. and, and they're encased in plastic so why, why wouldn't you do it would you get one with the surpass past the ring yeah well i if, if they were available yeah why not i mean i i, I like minimalist <laughs> minimalist See, is good the less you harry the better i would get one under my skin my mum definitely wouldn't but she would have a contactless card my grand keeps her contactless card wrapped in silver foil. So I think that's kind of a very generational a generational thing. And your grandma's probably the least likely to get cancer out of all of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's sensible. My but... mum did tell me that she's like, oh, I've got the contactless for the first oh, time. Look contactless. 
So would, would JCB consider this like having a fingerprint on the actual card itself? We did it. We did it. We showcased it at Money 2020. Um, to be honest, I think my feeling within the, the company is probably we're headed more towards palm vein. So rather than going wearable, we're, we're going pure biometric of what you already have. No chip under the skin. Very simple uh, tech. But I think you know we've gone that way at the moment. Uh, certainly we're trialing it. We're working with one or two partners. And it works pretty well. My, my question here was online. You know, card not present. Mm. What, are, what are we doing here? That, that, get your to camera me, would take a picture of you, and I don't know. But I mean, yeah. that's not going to do fingerprint, is it? Exactly. Yeah. So I think fingerprint for online transaction. I think online fraud is is the major problem. Okay, once you implement EMV, particularly, um, your, your face-to-face problem goes away with Magstripe transactions. But I think after that, then you have a, a card not present problem. Obviously, we have PSD two looking at secure customer authentication. Lots of different rules about that. So I guess it could be useful in that environment, but. I think we're probably, I mean, it's, it's very interesting now when you look at regulators and, and how they're interpreting the, the new laws and what is secure customer authentication, because I think some people are looking more towards um, traditional solutions, just card number and the three digits on the back. Does that work? Is that secure authentication? Well, not, European not authorities are saying that. Exactly. Not the RTS, no. Exactly. Um, so that's, that's just, it's coming out now. So yeah. I think we have to make up solutions. Um, this for online, I can't see it. I think it might be. Have you guys uh, used Atom Bank with the facial recognition thing there? No, no. It's um, it's not very good. You can beat it with a photograph. But one of the guys from Atom Bank said, "Yeah, we know. We've got it there to kind of help change customer behaviour and get them used to that sort of biometrics." Mm-hmm. I think this might be a, a similar thing. Like, if you get people used to using their fingerprint on the actual card itself, then further down the line, oh yeah, I'm happy to just put my fingerprint on some on somewhere and automatically make a payment or just do it through facial biometrics or voice biometrics or what have you. I, it could possibly be that down for that uh, as, a, as a bridge onto the next thing. Well, and, and, I, and I think we haven't touched on blockchain and distributed ledger yet, but mm-hmm. certainly the whole question of biometrics and building in biometric identity within a blockchain solution around a payment whether the blockchain is separate to the payment or part, part of it uh, is, is clearly where a lot of the future is going. And I think if you, 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 what you need is some means of connecting to that piece of the blockchain to enable that, the information to come out that you're happy to come out for that particular transaction because obviously you don't want your whole medical record coming out when someone's just buying a packet of crisps in the corner shop. But um, clearly you would want all your medical records registration to come out when you've just been involved in a road traffic accident and the ambulance is there so it's how you build all of this around and I think there is a lot of work being done in the sort of blockchain industry to to build these solutions Um, but they're not necessarily built around the moving of value on the blockchain but they're built around building ID on the blockchain and letting the value move through the traditional methods because you don't have to have both together and I think that's why Ripple has been quite successful with the banks because it's a messaging system rather than a transfer of value system. And when they've tried to use it for transfer of value, it's never worked quite as well. Oh yeah, lots of proof of concepts, but nothing, nothing concrete from them yet. Do you think as well, because it, it seems to be a bit of a focus on, uh, on, the, on the United States where I went to the US about a week ago, put my card in the machine and said, do you take chip and pin? They said, yes, put the chip in, had to sign. So it's, it's chip. Oh, there's chip and signature in the US. Yeah. Well. So ch- chip and sign as opposed to chip and pin. So it, again, it might be chip and chip and fingerprint, fingerprint. chip and uh, spit. 
Yeah. <laughs> she can spit. Can you imagine that? Uh, and then they know your DNA yeah. from, and they can change your health insurance at the same time and up, up the price. It's catchy, I like it. Chip and spit. Chip and spit. We yeah, founded it here nice. on this programme, remember that. <laughs> well, the next one I'm going to do a bit of shameless plugging is actually from uh, Fintech Finance, which is City launches its payments insight for clients with real time payments visibility for a, uh, a Royal Dutch Shell pilot. Uh, this is new service highlights dedication to provide a frictionless experience for clients in a rapidly changing business environment. Payments for businesses, making it frictionless. Is this is this something that we want to be focused on, or we should be, is frictionless uh, something required for business? Uh, or I think, still I think biz, big businesses have been there for a long time. They've got their big treasury departments, and a, a lot of the major companies like Shell. They even started the whole target, target two solutions on the, the, the banking side. So um, the whole concept of moving treasury into the corporate and out of the banking solution has been has been there a long time in these major corporates. I think the the thing that's been the problem all the way through this is is the smaller businesses, the SMEs, mm. who've always been locked out. They've always had the highest charges and you've seen in the, the, the electronic money and prepaid industry for many years that the, the best solutions that have been coming through are in relation to the SME market, creating business solutions because of the cost savings you can make and the, and the, the, the frictionlessness of, of using that type of service. So I think, I think there is a, a, a big disconnect. I think major businesses are, all, are always going to use the banking system and, and they'll work it to their benefit. It's the small and medium ones that have got more issues uh, and have more difficulty getting their banking. Uh, and again, the only people that can really sol- find those solutions are pretty much the sort of fintech businesses rather than the banks. I don't know what your experiences are. I mean, is this this is arguably why invoice factoring is is such a, a growth segment at the moment, isn't it? I know that we you know have a lot of there's there's a lot a lot a lot of companies coming out now that are you know sort of jumping on the, on that bandwagon, and it was definitely a really big talking point at um, our, our Money 2020 event. So I think those two things kind of don't really work in, in parallel, but are, are sort of probably pushing forward like quite quite dramatically to change things for SME businesses. I, uh, I run a small business. I hate invoice factoring. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you lose control of, you don't even know when the client has paid the invoice. You don't have that communication with the client and you've got to get the client to email very specifically when they'll be paying, which is kind of half the half the battle, is, is knowing when someone's going to be paid. And if you get that far, you might as well just keep it in-house as opposed to go to somewhere else. I'm quite a big fan. There's a couple of small companies out there that do uh, invoice cycling instead of um, factoring, which is they look at your invoice, they then run loads of data, loads of analytics at it, and say, right, we're going to effectively treat this as, as your security and send you say 80% of the money now and then take a weekly direct debit or something so similar. So it's like a, a small loan, but it's linked to, it's kind of a nice mix between like a unsecured loan and actually an invoice factoring. I think those sorts of brand new products that sit between there can fit in quite neatly for the whole SME market. I think there's a lot of opportunity for really bankers to get quite creative and come up with new ways to, to finance invoices and to, and to deal with these sorts of trade and trade and SME problems. If they can be bothered, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's that's why the new companies come in and do. Yeah, it. that's why that's why the fintechs are out there because they they can see these niches and they can exploit a niche quite 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 rapidly, and they can still plug in the back end to a bank to get a, a line of credit to run that. But these new companies coming through have got more flexibility to work out solutions, and that's why they can come into market. 
does then give the opportunity for Starling Bank, for example, just start to do a lot with SMEs, their marketplace. You get a bunch of these new companies on there doing, oh, you're sort of, I know TransferWise are not with Starling, but you're TransferWise, your invoice cycles, those sorts of companies, it all, it all links together and suddenly you've got a... We look at something like Tide. Tide yeah. was set up purely for the SME market and it's taking, I think, more new SMEs than any other bank or fintech in, in, in London now. So and they're partnered now with uh, iWaka, mm. which is, uh, so, if, so if you're a Tide, you, you can get your funding via iWaka, which is not, dis- it's not invoice factory, it's not dissimilar to, you, you say but, what you need the money for and you get it. And I, and I say, I think these are the companies coming through that are going to help that sector of SMEs, which is th- the most needy sector, I think, in banking. Our final story of the week is for the Emerging Payment Awards, as the 2018 finalists have been announced. There's so many awards out there. And we, we, what's our thoughts on, on, on awards just in general? Are we on board with them? Because there's a lot of... There are a lot out there. I'm, I'm a judge on two sets of awards, so I have to disclose an interest. Yeah, I'm a judge on the Emerging Payments Awards. <laughs> um, and I, I, I like the two awards I'm on, which is the Carden Payments Awards and the Emerging Payments Awards. They're... they're they're both judging panels are run similarly. We both have uh, 20 to 30 judges on them. Uh, each judge has maybe three or four categories to judge independently across every entry in that one. Uh, and then the, the only difference then is in the emerging payments ones, uh, the question always raised is, do we or do we not, as a group of 25 to 30 of us, agree with the judges that actually judge that awards decisions um, do we if or is if there is a tie between two or three of them what do we do um, and then we agree or disagree that, that we should carry on with that particular uh, winner of that award and then we also make decisions as to whether actually either it was close or whether one of the entries was really good and should have a special recommendation so it's it's, it's a nice way to do it the difference with the carbon payments awards is that every award is then uh, instead of being told what's one, two, and three, you get told these are the, the top five that were through, which one do we want to vote on on the day? And you have, it's, it's, a, it's quite a longer process for all the 20 plus judges on that last day. But I feel that the, the nice thing about both of them is that you have a chairman of the judges and it's completely independent. Uh, and you have a whole group of judges for every, anything from the schemes being there. I think all four schemes are represented. Um, plus you have all the different parts of the industry. So I, th- I think those awards, yeah. both of them are good. I think sitting through them can be quite tedious at times. Um, um, and it's always a, a, a difficulty, I think, for the companies that run the actual award dinners to actually work out the best way to get each award up and through. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever run any awards. You do the startup ones. Um, we yes, we do our startup pitch um, competition. We don't, um, as Money Twenty Twenty, do um, you know Money Twenty Twenty awards. And I think a lot of the things that you know you're saying about awards is is very valid. And in my opinion, you know, awards have to be they have to contribute something to to the ecosystem. They have to serve as a benchmarking tool. Or um, you know, uh, if I were to look for companies that are, are, you know, that I wanted to perform a specific function, um, I would have to, you know, rely on the integrity of the awards to help me make a purchase decision as, you know, the buying entity. And that's where I think the value of awards come from. And for, for, for awards, they really have to serve the ecosystem. I think exactly. the problem we see 
with um you know as, as a conference organizer some some awards you know aren't, aren't necessarily perhaps the most beneficial for the ecosystem as as a whole um my view if you're paid to win you're not winning and that's what that's <laughs> yeah and that's, and that's and why that, i like these awards and like these, the, these the, the awards are but the the, the, the 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 difficulty you have as a judge though is the diversity of the entries because yeah, yeah, yeah. some are produced by some really good marketing teams or external pr agencies uh one of for these awards there was we could spot the ones that a particular agency had put in because they covered all the answers the judge wanted to hear they gave the right uh metrics that we wanted to do and they were really easy to judge and then you'd get a handwritten one-shider from some other fintech startup that clearly this guy just scribbled at all his notes and it was like one paragraph and that was it and how on earth are you supposed to judge that against a, a, a five pager with the exactly same maybe same amount of words but set out crisply and clearly so it is difficult sometimes to, to, to differentiate and be able to pick the, the right winners if you've got someone that's actually got a really good product but you think they've written such a And there's some rubbish. Really, really good products on there. Just flipping through some of them, there's quite a, a variety of well, different different categories but also different size companies that have been put forward. So you've got things like Glint on there, which is... Glint is a cool product. Yeah, and, and I've, I actually I signed up for a U account on Twitter. Oh, your account is, yeah. he's a cool guy that runs that. And the interesting one is that uh, obviously on the uh, one of these awards is my other podcast that I do, is which it? is oh. uh, FinTech <laughs> Unplugged, which I'm yeah. plugging here yeah. um, <laughs> with Suresh, um, uh, which is a much, much shorter than this. It, the average sort of five to 10 minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, we were up for one and I had to step out of the room. So I, st- I know we're in the final. We're here with, I think it was, uh, no, it was Blue blue train that did it for us they're, they're the ones that did it. but it was um it was fun and we did get into the final uh so who knows we might we might be up there so but lord um, Monk's on there as well uh, lord, lord um, <laughs> yeah he's fantastic with names ali one day could learn to be a presenter if he had some oh, proper lessons you know that um but don't worry we, you'll, you'll get better by, by the fifth podcast you'll be there i will on the editing say court niche yeah. say court court niche. court niche yeah yeah <laughs> what's the name of the company more uh, more wand. More wand. Well, well done. Well done. Yeah. Give it a round, round of applause for Ali. Right. Such a simple thing. But then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the connotations going through your mind, Ali. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. There's, there's some a good, good variety of, uh, of different companies on there. But that is when that that is. Uh, Catherine Ryan's going to be on there as well as Jimmy Carr, which is disappointing to not see uh, HMRC nominated on there. I get one on there. He, he might win his own award. Well, that then wraps up uh, the news show. A big thank you to all our guests. It has been a pilot. I think it's been quite quite entertaining. Um, big thank you to all our guests. Where can we find out more about you, Emma? Um, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Emma RPS. Um, same on LinkedIn. Don't forget the R. Um, or obviously email me at Emma at money2020.com if you want to find out anything about any of our Money 2020 events. Brilliant, excellent. And I've had to say Robert there. <laughs> and, uh, He's losing it. I know. And Andrew. I was going to say my mum. You know, she, she's free and available. We'll, we'll tell you a wonderful stories. Um, no, but <laughs> More seriously, uh, LinkedIn, Andrew Mitchell, um, and JCB Europe, Twitter. 
And for me, I'm Prepaid Robert on Twitter. I've had that hand for so long now, <laughs> when Prepaid first came out. Um, and please look at our FinTech Unplugged uh, uh, podcast as well, available on uh, many different media. Uh, and I think I'm going to get Ali to interview him on my one, because that'll be a laugh. Oh, God. I'm going to give him lots of different company names and that and say, read this list of names. <laughs> for, uh, for Money 2020 China, I've actually... Uh, well, for Europe, we had to introduce the mayor of Yanjong. And see, I pronounced that phonetically. I'm uh, proud so. of you. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's a difficult one. Well, where's Yanjong? It is in the it is in the province of China. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we'd get Where, that. Where's, our, where's China going to be held? What, what city? Uh, China is being held in Yanjong. Yeah, oh, yeah you're trying, trying. Yeah, you're trying, trying. How do you pronounce it, Emma? Um, I, so I wouldn't like to comment on Careful. my pronunciation. I'm going to leave this all to Ali, um, to be honest. Uh, but I am uh, at Ali Patterson, and this, along with FinTech Insider, Blockchain Insider, and InsureTech Insider, will all be on the 11FS Media, available on iTunes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.